So you've probably heard the phrase before, if you hear it for long enough, you probably start to believe it. Right now, people use this for a number of things. People use it as an encouraging thing, right? They say, you know, well, if you say something or if somebody tells you something long enough, you actually start to believe in yourself. It's more of a self-esteem thing. Or that's on the negative side, right? If somebody tells you something terrible about yourself time and time again, you actually start to believe it's true about yourself. But I'm going to put those aside this morning, and I'm going to say our world, our society, our culture tells us something that we've all started to believe. And it's because it already plays into what our sinful nature tells us. And that's that life is all about you. We have a world that constantly pushes this agenda through advertisements, through social media, through TV shows, through movies, through education. All of it is, it's all about you. However you feel is the most important thing in the world. And we hear it long enough, and we start to believe it. And we start to think that everything revolves around ourselves. Yet, we're going to have an example this morning in John the Baptist of what it looks like to properly understand ourselves so that we can then properly live the way that we're supposed to live, which is not all about self. And we'll see what that looks like. So we've already heard a little bit for, about John the Baptist up until this point, right? We, we heard earlier in chapter 1 that he was bearing witness about the light. He himself was not the light, but he was bearing witness about the light. And then last week we heard that he says, even though he is going to chronologically come after me, Jesus is the one who ranks before me, that he has existed before me because he is God. And so we're going to look a little more in detail on what John the Baptist says about Jesus today. And I want to just give you a little context here. What John the Baptist is going to say, this moment of John the Baptist's testimony comes after he has already seen Jesus baptized. Now that's something that's in the other Gospels where they actually tell the story of Jesus being baptized and the dove and then the Father's voice says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Right. So that whole situation, that whole experience has already happened when John the Baptist gives his testimony that we're going to see today. John in his Gospel doesn't go in detail of that experience. We'll see a little bit of it explained at the end of the passage, but I just want you to understand that John the Baptist has already seen that happen as he's coming to his testimony today, because that'll make sense more as we get into it. But there's something from the Old Testament I want to read to you before we jump into the Gospel of John, because we're going to see John the Baptist bring this passage up. So out of Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to start in verse 1. This is what it says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And the the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh 
shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, if you know Israel's history at this point in time, so Israel is actually being told they're going to be judged for their sin and they're going to be sent into exile. Isaiah is a prophet telling them, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be sent into exile because you've continued in your idolatry, you've continued in your sin, so you're going to go off into exile and God's going to keep you there and in a sense you're going to pay for your sin, even though we know that ultimate payment isn't paid in exile, but it's it's a picture of what sin does. It sends us into exile and now... Isaiah's telling of the day that Israel's going to get to return back home. He's gonna, he tells them, comfort. Her warfare is ended. Iniquity, sins have been pardoned. And so as Israel's going to head back to their home, it says, a voice in the wilderness says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. And then at the end, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So while we can look at Isaiah's situation and know that this is Israel coming back from exile, John the Baptist is going to apply this passage again to his context. That make a way for the Lord is him making a way for Jesus to come after him. So there's kind of a double plane on it here. So it actually applied to Isaiah's situation in Israel and exile, but it's also going to be a prophecy that applies to Jesus and John the Baptist's situation. So I just wanted us to read that and understand that historical context before we get into the Gospel of John. So now if you would turn if or follow along, we're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It says this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, stands one, you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So in the first 
part of John's testimony, we see John's understanding of himself. Who does he understand himself to be? So it begins, this is what it all begins with, is John has a group of people come to him, priests and Levites, it says. And this makes sense in their culture. There's a guy standing out in the water baptizing people. That didn't happen in Israel. The Jewish people didn't do that. Now, there were people that would go out in the water and baptize themselves as far as like cleansing purposes, like a purification process. But to have someone else baptizing people was not a common thing. And so they hear that there's this guy out there baptizing people in the water, and they start to think, this guy must be claiming some sort of authority. If he thinks he can actually baptize people and cleanse them in some way, we have to ask, what's this guy doing? Because you have to remember, in Israel's history, between the Old Testament and New Testament, there was a history of people claiming to be the Messiah, starting revolts and riots. And so they know that that's happened in their past, so they're like, we got to be careful with this. we got to be careful and make sure that this guy isn't claiming to be the Messiah. Messiah, just like we've seen in the past. But upon arriving to him, what does John the Baptist say? Right from the get-go, it says, they say, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He says, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. And so he makes it abundantly clear from the get-go. But remember, John the Baptist has already had his experience of seeing the Spirit come upon Jesus. He knows who the Christ is. And so there's an emphasis, if you look at it from the original languages, there's an emphasis here where John says, I'm not the Christ. And then we'll see later on, he's going to say, but there's one among you who is. But then the questioning goes on. They say, well, then are you Elijah? And now for us, that's kind of like confusing, right? Because if we don't have the whole Old Testament context, we don't understand why they would ask Elijah. First of all, Elijah's the one who goes into heaven and doesn't die, right? He's taken into heaven. But also in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there's a promise that before the day of the Lord comes, he's going to send Elijah. And so they're asking, are you claiming to be Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no. Now, here's what we find out, though. John, this shows us John doesn't fully understand what he's even doing at this point in time. Because in Luke chapter 7, after this experience and all of this that happens, Jesus actually refers back to John the Baptist and says he is actually the Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. But John the Baptist doesn't actually fully understand this yet. He just knows that he was told to baptize this guy, and that whoever he sees is the one who will baptize with the Spirit. He doesn't see himself as Elijah. He just knows that this is the Messiah. But Jesus will refer back to him and say, that actually was Elijah preparing the way for the Lord. He's not saying he is Elijah. He's an Elijah-like figure. right? It's not that Elijah has come back down out of heaven, but it's a type of person. It's an Elijah type. A prophet speaking. But anyway, John the Baptist says, no, that's not me. I'm not Elijah. And then so they ask, are you the prophet? Now for us, we might not grasp what they're saying here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there was a promise made to Moses that there will be a prophet like you to come later. 
probably a reference to Jesus. But John the Baptist says, nope, that's not me either. I'm not doing any of this. So we can look at this and say, what do we see that John the Baptist is trying to say here? He's trying to say, it's not about me. There's this constant deflection, this constant denial of that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. He's trying to get everybody to stop looking at him. Which causes them to say what? If you look in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So these people are getting fed up with John at this point. They're like, well, then who are you? You're you're saying you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. Well, then what can you say yes to? Who are you? What is it that you're claiming to do here? And this is where we see John the Baptist pull in Isaiah chapter 40. He sees himself as preparing the way. That's why he says... I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In quoting Isaiah, John the Baptist is saying that that Israel at this point is reaching a new point in their history. Because it's like Israel coming back from exile, right? As they've come back from exile, they're being pardoned from their Sin, as they would pave a way for the Lord as they come back into their home. So John is saying, I'm making the way for the Lord because there's one to come after me. Right? The Lord is coming after me. God Himself is coming after me. It's Jesus. Now we can read this and we can say, Well, John's kind of making a bold claim about himself here, isn't he? I mean, he's actually saying that he's the fulfillment of prophecy in some sense. But notice, what is John actually saying about himself? He says, I'm a voice in the wilderness. He's not claiming to be the Lord. He's claiming to simply be a voice in the wilderness calling for people to make way for the Lord. Think of it this way. He's not really claiming any glory for himself. Think of like when a president goes into a town. Now, I know you probably all have your own thoughts about the president, right? I'm not going to deal with that right now. As the president, any president, goes into the town, what happens? All the local police and state police or whoever paves the way so that you can have a clear path, right? How many people are paying attention to the police versus the president's car? That's what John the Baptist is saying here. He says, I'm making the way for the Lord. He's not claiming any glory for himself here. Just like the police wouldn't claim any glory for themselves by simply blocking off the road so that there's a path for the president. So we see John is more about pointing away from himself rather than pointing to himself. So then... They continue to ask him questions. Notice, they've missed what he just said. Right? He just said, I'm making the way for the Lord. I'm a voice in the wilderness. And what do they say in response? Then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? They've missed what he just said. He just told them, the one coming after me is the Lord. And they said, 
Well, then why are you baptizing? They, they totally missed who's coming after him. But anyway, he says, the one coming after me, right? He, so he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me. Right? John doesn't mention Jesus yet. He hasn't mentioned the name of Jesus yet. Even though he knows who Jesus is, he knows who the Messiah is, he doesn't mention him. He just says, one who is among you who's coming after me. Chronologically coming after him. But notice what does he say about the one who comes after him. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, we can get the gist of what John is saying here. But if you understand Israel's context more so, you understand what John is really saying. A a student of a teacher was allowed to be told by their teacher to do almost anything. The teacher could tell the student, go do this, go do this, go do this. The student would listen. There was one thing the student could not be asked to do by his teacher. That was to take off his sandals. Why? That was a job reserved only for the slaves. A student was too good, in a sense, to untie and take off his teacher's sandals. So that was reserved for the next lower step of the servants or the slaves. And notice what John the Baptist says about this. He says, the one who's coming after me, the Lord whose way I'm paving, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Let that sink in for a moment. Of what is John really saying about himself? I'm not even worthy to be a slave of Jesus. His understanding of who he is, his humility of who he is, requires him, demands him to recognize his own unworthiness. His view of how big God is, of how big Jesus is, goes to the point that it recognize, he recognizes how small and insignificant he is. That he is even unworthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, the way that you view yourself influences the way that you will be a witness for Jesus you must first see yourself as unworthy of Christ. We live in a world, as we said at the beginning, that is completely contrary to this, right? We live in a world that says, promote yourself, move yourself up the ladder, worry only about yourself. A world that says, satisfy your appetites, live out your passions, focus on your wants. And John the Baptist's message is the exact opposite of that. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And let's not forget, Jesus says the same message. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So last week, we talked about how God draws us to himself, right? That we don't just randomly wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's that God goes through this process of drawing us to himself, 
Let me remind you that in this context of understanding what John is saying, God didn't choose you because you're so great. God's not watching your life to see how many likes you get on Facebook. He's not watching to see how much money you make or when you're going to get that nice car. And then finally, when you reach a certain point, he says, all right, I'm calling you up to the big leagues now. Now you've made it to this status where I can call you to follow me. But instead, Paul tells us something in 2 Corinthians. He says, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So if all of the Bible, all of God's agenda is about God being glorified, God making his power known, then you know why God chose you to follow him? Because you're weak. Because his strength is shown in your weakness and my weakness. God chooses the weak so that his power will be made known. And it's only in our understanding ourselves as weak, understanding ourselves as unworthy of Jesus, that we can actually witness the right way like John does. And so as we understand ourselves rightly, you also can be a witness, a voice in the wilderness. Because we live in a society that's not that much different necessarily. Much like Israel coming back from exile, or much like the Jews at this point in time where they're living under the darkness of Roman rule, you also live in a time of what we might call spiritual dryness in our world. We in America are at an all-time high of the number of people that don't identify with any religion whatsoever. Or even in church culture, we have a culture of raising up yourself, of self-promotion, of raising your self-esteem. And that's what religion is about. That's what Christianity is about. That whatever you feel, your emotions, is truth to you. So we live in a time of spiritual dryness. But as you see Jesus for who he is and see yourself in light of that for who you are, you can be a voice in the wilderness. You can shine light in the midst of darkness. Not because you are the light, but because as you've emptied yourself, the light who is Christ shines in you. You're not light in and of yourself. You're only light in as much as you're reflecting the true light who is Jesus. So, Are you asking yourself, when you go throughout your day, how can I be a voice in the wilderness? How can I prepare the way of the Lord? How can I prepare a way for this atheist co-worker to know about Jesus? How can I prepare a way for my cynical neighbor to have the hope of Jesus? How can I prepare the way for this rebellious family member to know what it means to be freed from their rebellion? And so you can be a voice in the wilderness, but it starts with understanding who you are, that we're unworthy, that we're weak. And then as we continue in John's testimony, we now see Jesus come on the scene. In verse 29, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming, right? So now we get into John's testimony about Jesus, 
So John sees Jesus and he's going to speak about Jesus. But before we get into the details of what John the Baptist actually says about Jesus, I want us to notice an important point here real quick. John gives a verbal witness to who Jesus is. He says he's a voice in the wilderness, so we see him speak there. And here when John sees Jesus, he speaks. Now to you that might sound elementary. That might sound pretty basic. Of course he speaks about Jesus. But our Christian culture has had some confusion here. There's this Christian movie that I, I watched, and in it they quote this guy from church history, I think it's St. Francis of Assisi, they quote him and they say, this is how he told his followers to share the gospel. He says, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Right? And we get what he's saying there, that your life should exemplify the gospel, should display the gospel in such a way that people notice something's different about you. Right? And so that's true in one sense, that our conduct should be in line with what we believe to be true about Jesus. But I, I think that sort of mentality gets in our minds as Christians, and we think, as long as my conduct is Christian conduct, I don't have to ever speak about Jesus. We kind of use it as an excuse to not have to actually have a verbal witness. But let me remind you, you don't ever see a witness in the Bible who doesn't speak. It doesn't exist. Because the reality is, even if your, Christ, your conduct is Christian, and people notice something different about you, they don't know what that source is of what's different about you unless you say something. They're not going to say, you act different. You must be a Christian. That's not going to be the assumption, especially in our world. The assumption of nice people is not going to be associated with being Christian because we're known to be the judgmental people. So the only way people are going to understand that your Christian conduct has a source in Christ is if you say something. So we have to remember that our witness is not just a behavioral witness, but a verbal witness. But moving on into the details of what John says about Jesus, we're going to work in reverse order here. We're actually going to go to the end of the paragraph and then work our way back to the front. Because I want us to go back to the experience that John saw when Jesus was baptized. So look in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now he goes on to say, I myself did not know him. Right Now, John the Baptist knows Jesus. They're relatives. They're distant cousins of each other. So they know who each other are. What John's saying here is, I didn't know that this was the Messiah until this experience. So John says, I see this dove come down, and it remains on him. And then he gives the explanation. He who sent me to baptize with water, which would have been God said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the one who God sends John the Baptist with this baptism of water only and says, When you see the Spirit come down and remain on this man, 
That's the one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit. John sees this happen with Jesus, which leads him to inevitably say, Jesus is the one who can baptize with the Spirit. Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. And we even see it at the end, right? Verse 34. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I mean, who else can receive the Spirit and baptize with the Spirit except God Himself? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, who can have any sort of means of baptizing in the Holy Spirit except for God? And so when Jesus is now known as being able to baptize in the Spirit, clearly there's an identifier here that Jesus is God. Because of this experience, John says what he says in verse 29, 30, and 31. So let's go back to those. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So John's message is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. First of all, he's the Lamb of God, because right in verse 30 he says, right? This is the one who was before me. This is the one who has existed since the foundations of the world. This is the one that we talked about at the very beginning of the gospel. The Word. The one through whom everything was made. But then he also says, this is his purpose, right? That John the Baptist came baptizing with water, that Jesus, God, might be revealed to Israel. We saw this last week, too, that Jesus was fully revealing the Father as he was the Son. But I want us to sit on verse 29 for a minute. John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This would have been radically confusing for Israel. Now, you and I hear this, and we know the end of the story. So we know what John the Baptist means by lamb. We know how Jesus is the lamb. But for Israel hearing this, there was no connection between the Messiah and a lamb. There's no Old Testament prophecy saying that the Messiah is going to be called the lamb. All, the John, all John the Baptist really has in the Old Testament, if you go through it, is in Isaiah 53, it's talked about a suffering servant, one who's going to be pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities, and he will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He's going to be killed like a lamb led to the slaughter. It doesn't say he is a lamb. He's like a lamb. And then we have two other instances. We have in Genesis when Abraham takes, goes to sacrifice Isaac and a lamb is provided, Right? And then we have Passover, where in Exodus, Israel, in order to protect their firstborn from being killed by the final plague, right? What do they do? They kill a lamb and they put the blood posts on the door. But never in Israel's history is the Messiah called a lamb. John the Baptist is putting these pieces together. Has been, it's been revealed to him by God that all of this is putting together to foreshadow to Jesus. So then John the Baptist is able to say when he sees Jesus, this is the Lamb. 
This is the one who's being provided in our place like, like a lamb for Isaac. This is the one who's gonna, whose blood is going to save us like it did Israel. This is the one who's going to be led to the slaughter, who's going to be pierced for our transgressions. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, there's an implication when John the Baptist says the Lamb. There's an indication of substitution, of sacrifice, of a removal of guilt, of suffering, of death. Not popular concepts. But he's clearly hinting at the key theme of Christ's ministry. And we'll see it play out, obviously, in the rest of the gospel. But notice who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we might not have caught this yet because we're just in chapter 1. The, the term world is going to be used by John throughout the rest of the Gospels to talk about the most unlovable place in the world. It, these are the most unlovable people, right? We saw a glimpse of it in chapter 1 where it says the world did not receive him. They didn't know Jesus. And we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel that the world is always talked about in a negative sense, that they're always rejecting, that they're always trying to stay to themselves. They're always trying to follow their own way. They're always rejecting the Messiah. So when John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's saying the Lamb of God who sacrifices for even the most unworthy, unlovable people. Can you imagine? Is there somebody in your life that you find difficult to love? Now imagine a whole world full of those people. And Christ was sent for a world full of those people to take away their sin. By the way, it's not just those people, it's you and me. Brothers and sisters, your understanding of your own unworthiness, your own weakness, should cause absolute rejoicing in the truth that Jesus is the Lamb. As you recognize your own sin, your own rebellion, your own fleshly desires to go against God's way of life, you have to realize that a life on that path of sin, rebellion, is only going to lead to destruction. Paul tells us in Romans, right, the wages of sin is death. And by death, he doesn't just mean physical death. It is that, but it's also a spiritual death, an eternal separation away from God. But Jesus, never living in sin, never living in rebellion, experiences that death for you. Right? I think sometimes we miss this in Christian circles. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's not the nails that save you. It's not the crown of thorns. It's not the whips that he took. It's not the insults that are hurled at him. It's the fact that as he hangs on the cross, God himself, his father, separates himself from him. The eternal separation that we all deserve as sinners is experienced by Jesus on the cross. Right? That's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God actually forsakes Jesus on the cross. He removes himself from him. Jesus experiences our hell 
on the cross. It's only in that experience that we can receive life because now our punishment's already been taken. All of this so that you and I would recognize our own unworthiness so that we might trust in Him. A trust that causes you to no longer live for yourself but to follow Him. And He will forgive your sin and give you eternal life. And as you put your trust in the Lamb, we see that Jesus baptizes us in the Spirit. So when there's temptations in your life for you to promote yourself, for you to worry about only yourself, by the power of the Spirit, for those who have trusted in Jesus, you can deny those temptations. You can choose to deny the desire to have more money. You can choose to deny the desire for your child or your grandchild to, have all, to excel in every area of life. You can deny the desire to get lots of praise from other people. And instead, you can rejoice in that God provided you not money, but God provided you salvation. That your child might not excel in this area, but your child loves the Lord. Or that you can, not getting a lot of praise from people, but you've been adopted into the family of God. You can rejoice in that which is much better than anything yourself could desire. So may we take hold of John's testimony today. May we realize our own unworthiness and understand that our only hope is to run straight for the cross. That it's there that Jesus takes on the wrath we deserve, the separation we deserved, that he sheds his own blood, that he actually dies for you. And as we trust in him, either for the first time today or maybe at a deeper level today, the Spirit will stir in our hearts to be able to say, No, to our own selfish desires, no to self, to deny ourselves so that we might say yes to being a voice in the wilderness. Let's pray together. Father, may we never lose sight of our own weakness and our own unworthiness to be reconciled to you. May we understand we deserve nothing but to be separated from you for all eternity. And then as Jesus, the Lamb of God, hangs on the cross, he experiences that separation. He dies the death that we deserve so that if we would trust him and follow him we would have eternal life and we would have your spirit even now and we ask that lord that you would fill us with your spirit this morning in such a way that we would say no to self say yes to living for you say yes to being a voice crying out in the midst of a world that's seems a lot like wilderness with a message saying make way for the Lord 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. May we be faithful to verbally share this, not just display it with our conduct, but to say it with our words so that people around us who don't know you might be rescued, might be freed from their chains, Lord. May we never lose sight of this. May we not forget our own unworthiness. And may we be faithful to share the message of the gospel of Jesus with those around us who are enslaved to their sin and need freed by the Lamb. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.